Welcome to Financial Foresight. This podcast was made by four fee-only CFP professionals to help consumers understand the financial industry. Let's meet your hosts. They're either naive, they're stupid, or they're lazy. You know, the other thing is, is uh, my ceiling fan just went out in my kitchen today. He is the commander in chief on this video right now. And uh, man, I am feeling controlled and empowered and safe. Don't stop for Dwight's baby. We can edit that out. (laughs) All of the podcast hosts are owners of RIAs registered in their respective home states. All commentary on this podcast represent the opinions of individuals and not their firms. All commentary is financial education, not financial advice. So let's get started. Welcome to the Financial Foresight Podcast. We have the whole gang together today. Colin, Dwight, Ian, Isaiah here. And with that, Dwight, you had a great article and topic for today's discussion. Can you kick us off with what you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. So this was in Market Watch, um, and obviously we'll link to it uh, in the show notes. And it's an opinion piece. And the title is The Road to Riches is this this simple, Drive a Crappy Car. And the author uh, of this particular article, uh, Jared Dillon, or Dillian, um, just kind of went on the whole point of, hey, look, you know, having a car or buying a new car is like setting $40,000 on fire. Um, and it just basically spends the rest of the article making his case for that. And, um, so I'm just kind of curious to get your guys' thoughts, uh, on that. So to start off with, I think he has a point, but I think he's generalizing way too much, which is normal for articles, right? They, they try to have a catchy headline, I think there is some truth to the idea that you shouldn't spend all your money on a means of transportation that depreciates over time, right? Like, that makes sense. That said, I think if you drive a $4,000 car that you have to put $10,000 into repairing over its life cycle, it's still a $15,000 car. (laughs) With no reliability. With no reliability, which might cost you wages if you miss your day. It might cost you stress, anxiety all that kind of stuff. So there's probably a happy medium number on what the correct amount to spend on a car is. And I don't, I don't have any specific thoughts on that, but I will also say that there's, there's some degree of benefit to just having a reliable vehicle or whatever your mode of transportation is and getting rid of that in the name of just spending less money is not always the right solution. It's kind of an, it depends situation. It's like, do you need the Lamborghini? No, not really, but you probably need the Camry, right? I think my only comment on this would be kind of like the house thing that we talked about in a couple episodes ago is that, you know, your car is not an investment. So as long as, you know, if that's, as long as you have the right mindset, that transportation is an expense, uh, you can either, uh, have a, you know, a a large expense for travel or a small expense for travel, preferably small, but if it makes you really happy and, you know, it brings just joy to your life, maybe the car is something that you're going to be more expensive on. And maybe you can cut in other areas of your life. Um, I think as long as you have the right mindset, with, with how this plays into your wealth building uh, journey, then, uh, you know, have at it. My favorite type of car is one that's paid for. Yeah, my favorite is a G-Wagon and it costs more than my house. So I don't think I'm ever gonna get one of those. Um, but 
I just recorded a video talking about budgeting cash flow and from the fixed expense side, if you can control two things, typically you'll be in good shape and that's what you spend on your housing and what you spend in your car. If you can control those two things, the lattes, all that other stuff, it doesn't matter because the two biggest expenses usually that are fixed that you have month in and month out are the vehicle and where you live. Yes, having a car that paid off is great. I am one of those people that I never really bought a more quote unquote expensive car prior to the one I have now. And there was a little bit of buyer's remorse. I do like my car, but I had had, you know, a 14 year old car that I'd driven to college. I was like, oh, I'm, I'm ready for a newer, you know, nice car and um, bought it used, really good deal, but it was, you know, two years old, had less than 3000 miles on it. So it was basically brand new and got a good deal on it. But at the end of the day, still like having a car payment sucks. And I think anyone would agree with that. And so, yeah, I, I, I just struggle with saying, you know, you should drive a super cheap car because it just depends. And sometimes I think it can get in your own head that you need to have a nice vehicle to keep up with someone else or make this certain statement, but uh, you need to decide what you want. And if it's important you to have a certain car and it works in your budget and you can make sure that you're still saving an appropriate amount to hit what you want to hit, by all means do it. It's your money. You don't have to like drive nothing. So that's kind of my thoughts on it. Yeah, 100% agree. I mean, that to me, that's the biggest takeaway is, you know, what is that payment going to look like in your cash flow? And is that where you want to spend your money? I don't particularly care if that's where you want your money to go. That's great. But you've got these other goals. So if driving a nice car isn't really a huge priority to you, then maybe, you know, we kind of look at how do we you know, dial that down so you can use those funds for something else that's, that is a priority to you, if that's traveling or fixing up your house or whatever the thing is. So, um, yeah. One other thing, Colin, you talked about him being an investment. So the previous firm I worked at, there was a guy that loved buying classic cars and wanted to call them his investments. And he had, I think over 30 cars at one point, really nice, expensive cars. Like we're not talking like cheap cars and just storage and like insurance was costing him like 35 grand a year. And then he would go and just buy more and he would never sell them, even though he said he was gonna sell them. And it was just like, dude, you have, I think he had almost a million dollars in cars, but they just sat there and he maybe drove them occasionally, but then he would always have issues and then he'd wanna buy this or that or fix them, but he'd never sell them. It was always just buy more. Now, he has a tax write-off for him, uh, if, that's what it, if that was the angle. No, he, he was very blessed and fortunate that he was left with a sizable amount of money. So it wasn't quite as big of a deal that he was able to kind of blow that in, in more of a, a fun way. But yeah, it's just I've just seen too many people say, oh, I'm going to buy this car and you fix it up or it's a classic and it'll appreciate in value. I don't know how many younger people really want older classic cars. I think that generation that loved and was willing to spend a lot on that has changing. I don't know about you guys, but I could care less. I don't want a classic car and spend 50, 60, 70, $80,000 on a car. Would you say that he was more like a value investor or <laughs> kind of like a momentum or just kind of a closet indexer with these cars? I think it was a high expense uh, mutual fund investor. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah, there you Tight. go. Costing him about 3% a year. Yeah, it um, wasn't good. <laughs> but, so circling back, also talking about the tone of the article, which is I know something you wanted to talk about, Dwight, is 
I really hate these kind of one-off articles that are like, this is the key to being rich in the future. <laughs> like, if you just spend less on a car, you'll be wealthy. It's like, no, 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 the actual way to build wealth is the savings that you get from not spending the money on the car. So if you can ensure that you get the savings elsewhere, regardless of what you spend on the car, the car is irrelevant, right? The, the car is just a thing that you have to spend money on similar to a house right great point great point yeah i think eric roberge had a uh tweet out this week or last week it was just kind of like the point is isn't to like cut all your spending per se it's just stop spending money on things that you're not using or don't care about or whatever it is and you can tweet to the actual or link to the actual tweet but yeah exactly like just cutting expenses to the end of it is only going to get you so far that doesn't get you you know how do you increase your income or how do you increase your you know total net worth or in all these other things so yeah which might lead us to our next point tweet of the week are we ready for tweets yes we can do tweets so the random number generator pulled up isaiah for today yay (laughs) so my tweet is from dr daniel crosby who i've referenced other times but he's just a great twitter follow at daniel crosby and his tweet is 10% of your brain is wired to mimic what others are doing or feeling. We are literally wired for empathy. And it says depressed folks have higher levels of emotional empathy. The more intense the depression, the deeper the empathy. Take your big brain and your hardship and go love somebody. And I just thought this was a great tweet from the standpoint of I, for so much of my life growing up, was always like, you just got to mentally push through things and just be tougher. And I've not struggled with mental illness, but as I've gotten older and wiser, hopefully, uh, have realized there are some things that people do struggle with that are real challenges and issues, and you need to be cognizant of those. And sometimes just being a good person and loving on some people and just treating them the right way can make a huge impact and difference. And life is far too short to not invest in people. So that was kind of what struck me. And it was interesting because I liked the tweet and then my wife brought it up and she never brings up like tweets I like. So I knew it was a good one. Yeah, actually one of the old world treatments for depression, funny enough, when before we had pills or anything to deal with it, which thankfully we do have now, was actually just community service. Which is a weird comment, right? Like you're depressed, go work on other people. But it actually makes you feel accomplished. It gives you those endorphin rushes. It helps you deal with all the mental stress of depression which is very real right so you you kind of need that to break the cycle so to speak um so yeah i think that's a great positive spin here i i I like the tweet love loving on people i think gratitude is probably something that we could all use not like maybe in this group but just people in general like it's hard to feel sorry for yourself or anything like that when you just are so thankful and have gratitude um that's something that i've kind of personally work on and and it's just like all right i you know i just i'm so thankful for everything that i do have and all the friends and things like that um let's go out and 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 get things done okay so yeah that's kind of interesting too like with the uh the 10 percent of your brain is wired to mimic other people and i think that's something we were kind of talking a little bit about before we hit record on this uh this podcast was just it's really hard to do everything yourself um and in your own little echo chamber so you know, whether it's mental health or, you know, financial planning or whatever it is, it's like sometimes you just need help. Um, counselors have counselors and, um, you know, financial planners have financial planners. So um, I think it's I think the human brain, the human psyche is just kind of really interesting how it 
plays on itself. Um, and you know, I talk to people that think they're going to beat it. And I, I think it was like Thaler that wrote that recent book. That's just kind of like, you're just going to get in your own way. You have to get out. And so even if you're the most optimal person, it's like, well, you still have 10% of your brain that's still mimicking other people. So. Well, we're just social creatures, yeah. right? Like primate societies are all built around families and communes and evolutionarily we came from them so as a result we have a lot of that left inside of us and if you isolate yourself too much or just sit there and and you know focus on your own world too much it it becomes very hard to cope with all the stuff that's going on so get out there pay attention to what's around you appreciate it love people etc amen yeah, so transitioning, uh, I had uh, this topic kind of came up just from conversations with uh, some clients and actually some friends, and it just kept coming up. So I wanted to ask you guys your opinions of diversifying your income. So, I, you know, I, I really, you know, I th- I'll share my opinion on it, but I think the main gist of it was I have uh, the, the conversation was just trying to uh, diversify your income for means of diverse diversification. So I think a lot of the example or one of the most popular at least is, is through real estate. So trying to buy properties and, uh, and, and having rental income or passive income is a popular buzzword. And what I think bugs me the most is, is that what, what does diversification mean? So if, especially if you're selling, uh, assets held in your, portfolio that are holding thousands of companies from around the world, you know, in, in multiple different sectors and industries uh, in, in different countries and different currencies. I mean, that to me is true diversification. And then you're going to take away from that to buy a property in a small, t- you know, in a town or, a, you know, tied to a single city and who's going to be managing it you know, yours truly and how much experience do you have or what sets you apart in in that field? Um, You know, are you going to be having a property manager or, you know, how are you going to be the one fixing the cabinets or fixing the toilet or the sink when it plugs? And I I guess uh, I'm not really hating on trying to diversify income, especially I think the biggest takeaway for me is just trying to make sure that you're increasing your income. And then by doing that, you could then use that income to purchase more, uh, you know, equities that are diversified to grow your wealth. So I'm all about trying to increase your income in whatever means possible. But I think just diversifying your income for the sake of diversification, what does diversity mean? And are you really accomplishing that when you buy a single property? At least that's the one example. I know there's other ways to increase your income, but wanted to hear your guys' thoughts. Um, Where are we at? Yeah, I'll take a stab at it. And my thought is I'm a, I'm a big fan of diversification and we've had these conversations offline, online, um, on, on the phone. And so for me, when you look at everything, whether you own a thousand companies or one company, you got to understand what correlation is and everything moves together. So you have a, a stock that's in the UK and a stock that's in the United States. If the global markets go into a recession, they're both going to get hit. So I think that's why some people want to talk about having income from other sources. And I don't blame them for wanting to do that. I think your example of a single family home, 
not the right decision a lot of times because there is gonna be a lot more work. But what about taking that money and putting those funds with someone that runs a fund or a business that does that? So, hey, here's $100,000. You're gonna own multifamily properties across the United States. I have no problem with that. I encourage that. Uh, yesterday, I was just li listening to Meb Faber's podcast. He was talking about farmland and it was in South Bend, Indiana from a, a company. I grew up in a farming family, so I am a big fan of farmland as well and think that that can be a diversifier. It is one of the strongest assets. So if you think about what you can do with it, there's a lot of flexibility. It has zero correlation with the, the stock market, had really good years in, um, you know, during the great financial crisis. It struggled recently because of what they're doing is row crops, so corn, soybeans. And so when those prices and the commodity prices go down, it's gonna put pressure on kind of those cash rent properties. So. It is a yin and a yang. I'm all for diversifying your income sources, whether you're an owner of a business or a W-2 employee, you need to understand that. And um, you do want true diversification. You can do that through the market. A lot of people don't like it. It's a little bit more, um, it takes a little bit more education. So you can do things like manage futures. You can do a lot of other things that I'm a big fan of from a diversification standpoint outside of just stocks and bonds because a lot of times those things can correlate together depending on what kind of market environment you're in. So you need to be cognizant of that. I don't ever want to tell someone they shouldn't do it. But yeah, you want to be smart about where you put those funds and how much responsibility you personally are going to have. And is it worth paying someone a little bit more to manage it for you so that you can go enjoy, relax, but still have that diversification of income? Yeah, and I mean, when I was, yeah, I, it's a really good point. It's just kind of thinking about how's that going to work. I mean, that's usually my biggest, that I try to work with clients on it. I mean, when I was in public, uh, when I started in public accounting, I had a lot of folks in 07, 08, 09 that were snapping up real estate because it was cheap in the Midwest. And these were smart people. A lot of them were business owners or executives, like high paying executives and kind of realized passive isn't passive. Um, and I think the other thing too, is there's a lot of folks that want to get into real estate because they read a book or they, they're hearing it. It sounds sexy and there's all this stuff. And it's like, like you're forcing the math, you're forcing the cash flow. So all of a sudden you're making all these decisions and you're like, okay, well, I'm not gonna build in property management. It's like, okay, well, you know, a lot of other people are putting that in. Your time is worth something. And if you're not gonna do it, you've gotta pay somebody or, you know, just the different repairs and maintenance costs that need to be done and like truly do the math on some of this stuff and treat it like a business. Um, so, you know, I think it's always hard to kind of talk somebody out of it. If their mind's made up, their mind's made up. Um, but, you know, again, really trying to understand like what's going into that. And are you really getting the diversification or what you want out of that? Or is there better uses of those dollars? Um, so I kind of I kind of sometimes say like, it's sort of a philosophical thing. I try to you know talk to people on it again as, a, as an accountant, as a CPA, like I understand the tax benefits of it. I, I get a lot of that, but um, you know, just like anything, there's a lot of really smart people doing this stuff. So just kind of know what you're, what you're up against and, and things like. Yeah. I, I feel the same way about individual real estate properties. I think that moving out of diversified investment portfolios into individual real estate properties is a little bit of a gamble. I mean, sometimes the real estate properties can outperform the portfolio, but you're always taking on localization risk as a result. So I would much rather, to Isaiah's point, own you know, a mutual fund that owns only REITs or something like that. Um, but 
Another angle that I'd like to take here is if you're looking at diversifying your income streams, you probably read a financial blog or something, right? I mean, that's where a lot of this conversation is happening these days. It's part of sort of the new financial media that's sprung up in the last five to 10 years around all these people writing how to get rich sort of articles. And that's not a bad thing. But recognize the way that these people are primarily diversifying their income streams is through the blog you're reading. So if you're passionate about something, if you have a creative lean, instead of diversifying your income stream by doing the kind of carte blanche thing and just buying investment properties, I would rather see you find a way to turn your passion and your skill set into a secondary income stream while you're still working and then use that. Um, you know, whether you're a gamer and you want to start streaming things on Twitch or you're, you have some topic you want to write professionally about, I think that that's a better way to do a side hustle or a secondary income source than to just buy investment properties because you think they can be profitable. Doing things for the money is rarely the right decision. I mean, you should do things with the money as part of it, but doing it just to make money is rarely the right decision. Ian, I'm going to push back a little bit. So mutual fund with sure. REITs from a real estate perspective, I mean, that's highly correlated to the market. It still lost 50% in the great financial crisis. So if you really want real estate exposure, I wouldn't say that's the way to do it. I would still rather have something that's not listed, that is illiquid, because there is a benefit to that. As an, an investor, and this is totally dependent on someone's situation and how much from an asset or investment perspective, if we're talking about someone that has like a million dollars or less, a lot of this conversation makes zero sense. Like you're not gonna do it anyways, cause you need to have kind of some size and scale before you start playing in a lot of these different areas, just with the amount of money you have to put to work. But I am 100% behind owning physical assets and knowing you own the real estate, the land, whatever it is, you don't have to own the house individually, but if you own a portfolio of those and are putting it with a really good, smart investor, the one issue that I see, and this is me getting on my soapbox and part of why I structured my firm the way I did is so many ad advisors that are paid on AUM want to keep those assets in house because they can charge a fee on it. If you take that money and invest it in farmland, invest it in multifamily real estate, that's money out of their pocket. So no doubt they're gonna tell you that it's risky, it's this or that. So you have to take everything with a grain of salt and understand at the end of the day why that advice may be one way versus another. Or if you're a business owner, reinvest in your business. A lot of times, the, the rate of return you can get on new equipment or training or the other things are way higher than what you're gonna get in the market. Yeah, but you said exactly that. Like That's the issue that I have with it and that I've seen is people wrap up a bunch of money into this and realize like, oh, I'm just gonna put a couple thousand dollars down. I'm like, well, you're gonna go out there and buy a rental property and it's gonna cost you $200,000 for the home, like you might have to put 60 Gs down to get 30% in that. So where the heck are you gonna come up with that money? Like most people, like you said, if you don't have a ton of, like they don't have, like that cash isn't there. Or you turn around and say, I'm gonna take my house and flip it into a rental and kind of like forget about all the potential of where that could go. You know, kind of like Ian was saying, like maybe you could use some of that equity to, you know, pay for some other education. So total. I mean, I think you are exactly right, Isaiah. Is like if it you've got to where does this fit into somebody's entire net worth, and are they ready to take on that type of of that liquidity risk and understand like this has got to be potentially a long term investment and you know, there's going to be some ups and downs. Um, and the other thing I try to talk to people is making sure you're budgeting for those house repairs and things like that. I mean, what are you going to do if your house gets destroyed uh, by some bad tenant and you're out six months, you're out the rent and you're going to have to fix this house and not everything is solvable by insurance. 
Um, you know, so, so I, like I said, I've just kind of, I don't particularly care if that's what people want to do. I just, you know, kind of when you're looking at it, like, oh yeah, this guy like made all his money with like 25 properties. It's like, yeah, that might be true, but you don't see all the yeah, negative but that's sides. A, that's another full-time job. Exactly. Which is the part that doesn't get talked about a lot. Right. It's like, it's, it's perfectly fine to decide to make money doing anything. Just recognize the way that that is risky and or changes yes. your life because there's a reason that not everybody in the country is doing it right right if it was easy made a ton of money all the time everybody would be doing it and i guess that's what it's i'm saying is like simple. when i again back yeah, in yeah. 07 08 09 like that's what i was seeing was people a few years later trying to unwind this stuff saying oh i was going to make some easy money by buying depressed houses because you know they had cash and then realizing like hey the landlord game isn't as simple you know not as easy as it looks yeah. It's like, yeah. So, yeah. I also think to uh, maybe kind of picking on uh, Isaiah's comment of how things are still tied and that maybe it's like less risky being in a, a non-publicly traded uh, uh, holding or, or hard asset. I feel like a lot of times we have an illusion that our homes are not risky just because they're not listed on some market every Bingo. single day. Like, you know, just because that my properties can be traded on the, uh, you know, the New York Stock Exchange and I'm holding, uh, you know, a, a, you know, an equity fund and it's like, wow, it went up or down 50 percent. It's trading all the time. That's really, quote unquote, risky. But my house. Oh, no, I bought that for three hundred thousand today. Twenty five years later, it's worth, uh, you know, six hundred. It doubled in twenty five years. That was a good investment, quote unquote. And it's like to Isaiah's or uh, Dwight's point. What could you have done with those dollars? What was your opportunity cost? How much time on the weekends did you spend doing all this stuff? Um, were you actually was that actually a good investment? You know, the passive income isn't always <laughs> passive. Yeah, and one other thing you touched on. So people will talk about like leverage in investing is so mm -hmm. bad, but then when you buy a home, you literally are <laughs> using leverage to buy that house, but it's a good investment. So so you could also point. look at investing in the stock market using leverage. Again, I'm not implying you should, <laughs> and you can enhance your returns that way if you wanted to. So like you there's so much that it's the way that it's positioned and part of why owning physical assets that are illiquid and takes time to get out of are good because it helps with the behavioral aspects. Yes. Because I can't log on to my account and sell my stocks or bonds in a day when it, the process to unwind this multifamily property or um, the lockup for this farmland's a year. And so maybe you have to understand that going in. And if people took that same approach to investing in the stock market, they would do much, 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 much better. So I think that we all agree in a roundabout way. I'm, I just am a huge fan of diversification and I talk about it a lot in different ways. So, yeah. You also like splitting hairs, which is perfectly fine <laughs> on this podcast. Yeah. No, it's I, just important I mean, for people I, to know too. Like I'm just not a big fan of publicly traded real estate. It just isn't the same. That's fair. That's fair. I also think that one of the things that people should understand better about the stock market, which we've harped on like six or seven times on this podcast, is that you should expect the downturns. So that's kind of like the lockup period for the stock market. People don't look at it that way, but this should be the red flag moment where you're like, oh, nope, you can't sell anything that for this year. It's the worst year. Don't do it. But that's not how we talk about the stock market. We go, well, if you need to get your money out, you still can. And it's like, well, we should have a plan where you never need to get your money out. 
during that period, right? Um, which is not always achievable, but that would be the proper way to invest, I feel like. Um, so do we want to wrap up this topic, guys, and call it a show? Yeah, I think uh, on this last topic, I'd probably just conclude uh, to, to really challenge yourself of what you are trying to accomplish by, quote unquote, diversifying your income. And, you know, if you're taking on another full time job by now becoming a property manager, what else could you have done with your time? You know, does your company help pay for an MBA that would help increase your income? And if your ultimate goal is to increase your income, are you doing that in the safest bet or in the uh, most efficient way? Um, not, not necessarily a right or wrong, but would really just challenge you. There's no free lunch and passive income isn't always passive. Yeah, I like to talk to, you know, when I talk to clients and things like that, I kind of always talk about tools and, you know, a shovel and a backhoe both dig holes. They just do things in a much different way. Um, and so, I, you know, I try to kind of always figure out, hey, how does this fit in? So think about that. What are you getting? What tool are you using? And how does that fit into this project of your financial plan? Um, and so sometimes, and you just might not be there yet. So um, sometimes you might need a bunch of shovels before you get a backhoe. Yeah, love on each other, take care of each other, have some empathy, give people some grace, and not everyone's going to be perfect, and they're all fighting kind of their own battle. So that's the thought from the Tweet of the Week. Yeah, and wrapping up the first article, just don't buy into the hype that one article will just give you the answer, and that'll make you rich. It's hard work, takes time, but everybody can kind of work towards it. Awesome. Well, hey, thanks everyone for tuning in and we will catch you next time. Thanks so much for listening. We hope we were able to make you laugh and allow you to learn something. For all inquiries and questions, please email financialforesight at gmail.com. If you're on Twitter, feel free to give us a follow and ask a question there as well. Remember the podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only, and you should not consider what we've talked about investment or tax advice. Please consult your professional team before implementing anything we talked about. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and maybe leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you and thank you so much for listening. We'll be talking again soon.